Well, today we are going to jump into a difficult text. Uh, we are going to be spending uh, the next uh, several weeks uh, looking at why it is that we need God to give us righteousness, why it is that we can't earn, deserve, or attain it ourselves, why it is uh, that the gospel is such good news. And in order for Paul to show us how beautifully bright the gospel is, he actually has to unveil uh, for us the incredibly dark situation that we find ourselves in. That sin, as the scripture calls it, or I would just simply call it our rebellion against God's rule, our desire to make ourselves our own gods, that this issue has infiltrated every arena of human existence in such a way that we have become impotent in our ability to save ourselves. But more than just being broken and more than just being impotent in our ability to save ourselves, sin has actually brought forth the wrath of God upon the world. And that's not a comfortable topic. We're comfortable talking about sin as brokenness. We are not as comfortable talking about sin as making us worthy of judgment, deserving of judgment. I remember uh, uh, my favorite quote from G.K. Chesterton actually comes from uh, this incident in which the London Times posed a question to a series of writers in the city, uh, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton sent in the shortest answer, dear sirs, I am. And what Chesterton was tapping into is something that he also said that I always found really clever is he said, the greatest evidence for Christianity is sin. But he went on to say the greatest evidence against Christianity is Christians. Do you know why he says that? It's not just a tongue-in-cheek, clever statement. And Chesterton was clever, but he was showing that the thing that actually hinders people's ability to believe that the gospel is real is due to the very thing that actually makes Christianity believable, is that sin has so infiltrated every arena of human existence that it even makes the witness of the gospel of redeemed sinners challenging. Sin is so absolute in its power that only God's power available in the gospel can rescue us. What Paul is going to do between verse 18 and chapter three, verse 20, is he's going to unveil the dilemma of human sinfulness. And he's gonna do it by actually zooming in on, on different groups. And he's gonna start with the easy target, especially for those Jewish listeners that would have been hearing the, the letter, who, those people who had received the law of God, who had, been, who had been blessed with a revelation of God in a unique way as God's chosen people, uh, that, that, that Paul is going to begin with that condemnation that comes upon the pagan world that is turned from God to idolatry and all of the immorality that comes with it. 
But what's fascinating is we can, we're going to get into this in the next couple weeks in some very challenging passages that often will kind of threaten our comfort levels as Christians. And one thing I always want to say about being followers of Jesus and about those who adhere to the, to the inerrancy of Scripture and its trustworthiness is that we can say as Christians that the Scriptures are difficult at times, but we have no right to apologize for them. Because if indeed the Scripture and the truth of who Jesus is and the rule of his kingdom is the key to life and real liberty. Because Jesus said, if you, know the tr- if you are my disciples and you keep my word, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. If it indeed is the means to real freedom, then why would we shy away from the outworking of that gospel in our lives and in the world if we truly believe that God is alone holds the ability to establish what is right and what is wrong, then why should we be afraid of a world that tries to establish that for itself and proving to us again and again that the world does not have the answers that lead to healthy living? That no political party is going to save us? Do you guys have hope in the next election? I was just in, in the UK, they're no different there. They just signed off on Brexit. And there, you have a country that's divided in half. Half the country wanted out of the European Union. The other half uh, wants to be in it. And you have this incredible polarization of this kind of radical right, sort of xenophobic, get the immigrants out of our country. And you have this other, other polarizing side of progressive, super progressive left. And you have this, this, all this fighting. And the basic people of the country are like, we just want everyone's asking the same question. We're doing it here, they're doing it there and around the world. Where do we find peace? And where do we find hope? And what's at the root of all of these problems? And that is that humanity has put itself in the place of God and has tried to establish for itself what is right and wrong and it has not come up with an answer that is actually satisfying. And this is why we must not shy away from the difficulty of what these passages declare because what they declare is that, the, that the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart and will always be that. We accept sin at face value, but we do not understand its significance. When we look here at this first slide, uh, and it should, I, th- I think, yeah, there we go. This is, this is something I think is really important. Romans chapter three, verse 23, it says, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Now we can proclaim that, and I've often wondered, why didn't Paul just start there? Why do you need to go through all of this detail of the outworking of sin? I mean, it's just so, it's so bleak and so dark. And, and, and I think that the very reason is what I just stated. We can accept sin at face value until we begin to get into the nitty gritty of how sin works its way out in every arena of our lives. It is then that we become offended because often we think of sin, we often think of it in in regards to other people's sin. When I was in Manchester, um, Henry and I were uh, were at this pub and we were talking, we met these guys at the game and it was was really fun because, I mean, so many of my favorite bands have come from Manchester and I was super stoked that I was four blocks from the house that Morrissey grew up, the lead singer of the Smiths. And, And Henry's like, my son speaks up 
and maybe it's because he's of legal age there and had had a beer. Uh, it, but he, uh, um, and if you think that's sin, there's, there's your problem right there. Uh, <laughs> uh, was it Martin Luther once said, he who drinks sleeps. He who sleeps does not sin. Therefore, let us drink. <laughs> I like Luther. He was punk rock. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I was talking with Henry, and Henry's like, I don't like Morrissey. I, I can't listen to the Smiths anymore. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because he's, he, he's, you know, he's been saying all these horrible things, and he's pro-Brexit, and he seems to be like, have like a phobia of, of Islam, and yeah, I just think he's a bad person. And I'm like, so you're not going to listen to his whole body of work? I mean, he's just a curmudgeon. He's always been a curmudgeon, but he's just more of one now. But... I mean, what, what's the deal? And what it revealed is that in Henry's mind, and it's, it opened up a great conversation, and Henry's no different than me or any one of us here, is that we have these standards that we establish for ourselves. And those standards we like to apply, like that person's bad and I'm not. I'm not like that kind of person. I'm not like that. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to show, he's gonna start off with the kind of easy targets, the, the, the low-lying fruit, like, just outrageous, like immorality, murder, and sexual immorality, and the and the religious listeners of this letter um, are going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's going to have his harshest words are for those that have the law and know the revelation of the righteousness of God, because ultimately, where he wants to lead everybody to is the same place. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are lost and we deserve his wrath, his judgment. So let's look at this first verse. He says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, Paul's gonna provide for us here a profound psychological analysis of disordered love. And I think that this is really important for us to, to understand because what he's going to show us is that sin, this rebellion against God's rule, means that all of us have been placed in the same position. We are lost. We need someone to help us. And what he's trying to drive us to is that place of helplessness because that is the key to actually experiencing the relief that is necessary. We have to admit that we need help we have to actually see that we need someone to save us for a savior to be appealing. This is the whole premise of Alcoholics Anonymous. We begin with saying, I cannot stop drinking on my own. I am an alcoholic. I confess that. But it is through the confession that the identity changes. I'm no longer one who is possessed by alcohol, but I find freedom in my ability to confess I cannot overcome it on my own. And Paul is going to try to drive us to this reality. And so he says this incredible statement, this, this overarching, very bleak statement in light of the beauty of what he just got done saying that the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness that comes from God is revealed by faith, for the just shall live by faith. And then he says, now the wrath of God is being revealed. And it's being revealed from heaven against all godlessness 
and wickedness of people. Now, let's ask the question, first of all, what is the wrath of God? Verse 18 begins with this universal indictment. All people stand condemned under the wrath of God. That is essentially what this passage is saying. But what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God, I would just simply say, is is God's reaction to unrighteousness. It is his expression, it's an expression of his justice. It's his active displeasure toward the reality of sin. This is essentially the bad news. That God's very character is violated by his creation's rebellion against his rule. The wrath of God, Karl Barth argues, is the righteousness of God apart from Christ. I think that's a very profound statement. The wrath of God is the righteousness of God apart from Christ. Because God's perfect holy standard is our condemnation unless God himself intervenes on our behalf. That's what Bart is trying to say. The wrath of God is best thought of as this. We often think of God's wrath as the opposite of his love, and that is simply not the case. God's attributes work seamlessly together. He is never, he is never not love. His wrath is his love violated. And wrath is not one of the attributes of God, it is the violation of his attribute, the attribute of love. In other words, God, like a good parent, you can't be a loving parent and not be angered by things that could actually hurt your child. Not be angered if your child gets into drugs, you hate those drugs and you hate what the drugs are doing to your kid because you love them. And the hatred would not even be there toward that thing if it wasn't that you love them. And so it is with God, I always say that the wrath of God is God's love violated. He is angry against everything that robs him of what he loves, which is us, which is people. Now, the wrath of God, ultimately, when we talk about it in, in, its, in the picture that scripture gives us, is it's not just God's anger at sin, but it will ultimately and finally be God's total judgment towards sin in which he will say, with the coming of Christ, in the final judgment, we believe that there will be a day when, it, when God will declare over the world, sin shall go no farther. And there will be real judgment because we are told that all of creation will stand before God, that all people, past, present, and future, will stand before the judge, the righteous judge, and we will give an account. And if we have violated God's rule, he who alone has the right to define what is right and wrong, and we have rejected his answer, his solution, wrath is what we will receive, which is a removal from his presence. And it's not really his physical presence, for God is spirit, 
but it has to do with relational presence. We will not be able to be in relationship with God. We will only experience his righteousness without Christ, which will be wrath. Nothing would be more horrible than an eternity in the presence of a holy God without the ability to be in relationship with him. Nothing would be more horrible than that. We often think of hell as being put out of, out of the presence of God, away from everyone else. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is God's absolute presence without the possibility of relationship with him. Think about that for a while. You're like, I don't agree with that. Okay, that's fine. But I'm pretty sure one of his attributes is that he's omnipresent. And I'm also pretty sure that it refers to God in regards to his judgment as a consuming what? Fire. I do believe that hell is a place in outside of the coming kingdom. And that, but it is a place where God, like as a good loving God that he is, contains sin. It says it shall go no farther. I don't believe that sin will grow in eternity. Only, only the knowledge of God and those who have been born again. That's why it says some will be born again or be resurrected to a resurrection of life and some will be resurrected to a second death, a, a death without end. Because if you don't have Jesus, who is the author of life, all we have is our dead selves to offer. And this is a terrifying reality and it's actually one of the things that should create within us um, a deep desire to be, uh, be continual conduits of God's beautiful gospel. Um, there is an increasing movement of universalism in the church today, the idea that all people will be saved. And I think that that really is just a cop out for why it is that Christians don't like to share the gospel. You wanna hope that all people are saved. I hope you're, I hope, I hope you're right for the sake of your silence. But I believe that here's the thing, we should be hopeful universalists. And what I mean by that is that we should desire that nobody experiences the reality of hell. We should, we should not be restful until every person has heard the gospel because that's the reason that Jesus keeps us here after he has saved us to begin with. Wrath revealed, Paul says. Now this is what's fascinating. He says that this wrath is already revealed. It's already been, it's already been made known. But how is wrath being revealed? If, if scripture talks about a final judgment that is coming, how is wrath being revealed in the current, in the current moment? What is the present reality which people outside of Christ stand? How is, how is that wrath being experienced? I think Oscar Wilde actually sums it up the best. When the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. The wrath of God, as we will see as it's being revealed now, what Paul has in mind is something that is stated again and again, three times actually, and we will consider this in, in detail next week. It says, therefore God gave them over. Therefore God gave them over. Therefore God gave them over. Nothing is more terrifying than the idea that God gives up. That he hands us over to what we want. Isn't even this the principle even in regards to how we as a church are to deal with really blatant sin within the church? Paul says, hand the person, the sinner, over to the devil that is 
body might be destroyed and that his soul might be saved. In other words, put him out of fellowship that he can experience the weight of his decision. Give him over. If this is what he wants to do, let him have it, but it will destroy him so that he might come back in repentance and discover the experience and the joy and the peace. Because isn't that one of the things you have to realize that when I walked away from my family at eight, I got kicked out of my house before I even graduated and I put, I went into a life of drugs and, and a lot of destructive behavior. Um, and I mean, I, I started that destructive behavior in high school and my mom had no control over it. And then one of the saddest realities is that she just had to, she had to let me go there. She had to, she had to trust that I was going to discover for myself the reality of, of the choices I was making, that, they, that, that God would get a hold of me through him allowing me to pursue what I thought would make me happy, which in actuality brought a tremendous amount of devastation, not only to my life, but to lives around me. This is the beauty of the gospel, God's ability to take our broken narratives and actually weave it into his beautiful redemptive story. But this is, this is how wrath is being revealed right now. Whatever is under heaven that is not yet under the gospel is under his wrath. That's what we need to understand. The wrath of God is the righteousness of God apart from the gospel of Jesus. Look here. It begins with this, with this powerful truth, the suppression of truth. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, ungodliness and unrighteousness, really, Paul is saying wrath is revealed against the violation of the two laws that make up the central law. That love is the hinge by which all of the law is fulfilled, but it's wrapped up in these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So sin destroys vertical worship, relationship with God and horizontal relationship with others. And we see this played out all, all around the world, how we as a race in under this reality of sin, even though we bear the image of God and we see the beauty of the world around us, we see the outworking um, at play uh, of, of, of this destruction of, of vertical worship and a horizontal service. And this is why the wrath of God has been revealed. But he goes on to say, and that th they suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What has the world been continuing to do, especially since the Enlightenment, is to create a means of, of flourishing and existence without the archaic baggage of a belief in an unseen God. Humanity elevating itself to a place where we will be our own gods. God rests within each of us. We have the ability to create our own future. This was Nietzsche's great vision of the Superman, is that, is that it, is, it would be through the destruction of, of the false religions that, that 
control and suppress the world. Specifically, he was going after Christianity. Uh, and if we can get rid of that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to unhinge the whole world. But out of the ashes will arise a new superior race that will have the ability to, to accomplish all the things that we have been frustrated by. A complete rejection of, of the idea that we are sinful by nature, and, but the belief that that premise has been applied to us uh, by this archaic belief system. But it reminds me, actually, of my favorite book by Flannery O'Connor, um, Wise Blood, in which her character, Flannery herself being a devout Catholic, um, she died at very young, at 37, from lupus, uh, wrote most of, most of what she wrote. She wrote alone, living with her mom, sick, and raising peacocks. She's an amazing woman. I love this lady. Uh, uh, but in Wise Blood, there's this character, Hazel Motes. And Hazel Motes is a, is a young man who is tormented by guilt, by the awareness what may be known of God is revealed to them, a sense that there is a God, a sense that, there, that not only there is a God, but there's been a, a violation of his nature, that there's been a violation of his law, and that Hazel Moat stands condemned by this God. And so what is Hazel's MO? What does Hazel go out to do? And, and O'Connor was the master of writing these sort of grotesque characters. They're not very lovable. She had this belief that we are so blind to sin that the only way to help people see their need for grace is to so exaggerate the character to such extreme proportions that only then will they be able to see that the truths that she's trying to declare are actually the problems that we're experiencing right now. So Hazel Motes goes to this town and he declares that he is going to start the church of truth without Jesus Christ crucified. And he says, I preach there are all kinds of truth, your truth and somebody else's, but behind all of them, there's only one truth, and that is that there's no truth. And he goes on to say, so where you come from is gone, and where you thought you were going, it was never there, and where you are is no good unless you can get away from it. Where is there a place for you to be? No place. I promise you that if, we want, if I want to empty out the church, that would be the message that I would give. You would just come like, give me something to grab a hold of, and you're like, but see, what Hazel Motes is declaring is true without God. He can't get away from this interior knowledge that there has been a violation of this moral God. But where did he even get the sense of that? Where did it even come from? I, I like it. She writes this really profound little statement, this description of him. She says, inside him, there was a terrible knowledge without any words to it. A terrible knowledge like a big nerve growing inside him. Isn't this the very question that Pilate gave to Jesus when Jesus was about to be crucified? Pilate says, you know, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? And he says, you say that I am the king. And for this person, purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And the most tragic component of that, pro of that question is that he actually turned around and walked away from Jesus before receiving the answer. Because the, the answer wasn't information, it was Jesus himself. And this is why we need to understand that there's lots of conversation about there is no truth. 
Only what is true for you. Well, from the Christian perspective, truth rests in God himself. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. He alone is the sovereign creator of all things who has the right to define what is right and wrong. And he has written into the fabric of all that is the truth of things. And you can deny the truth of things all that you want, but there are realities that, are, that, that, that cannot be denied. You can say that wall doesn't exist, it's just a figment of my imagination and I dare you to get up and run into it. But this is what we have done is that we have eradicated truth because we have elevated ourselves above God. We have suppressed the knowledge of the truth. The truth, it's not just facts. What we have suppressed is a knowledge of God himself. Because truth is not something to be constructed, it's something to be discovered. It's the love of God. It's the love of neighbor. For by their wickedness, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And notice he focuses on two realities here. And that is that, that there, is, there is natural revelation of God that when we stand out in the world around us, when we, when we talk with one another, when we look at the beauty of creation, uh, no matter how sinful, no matter how, how corrupt the world becomes, no matter how dark the days, there is still these, these unbelievable moments of just beauty. I've just taken the train through the English countryside. So cool being in a country that you can go from the top to the bottom in six hours. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really wild. But I remember landing it back here in Seattle and just the sun was out in Mount Rainier and just the absolute glory. And I don't look at that and say, well, this clearly is just a, a, a random coincidence that we're all here, that I'm actually even able to think and ponder my existence and, and even ponder the idea of randomness that that just somehow happened through an explosion at one time and we just lucked out in this one little blip in the middle of a vast universe to be the only place that seems to have any actual life. How did life happen? And you see, the natural response is God. But the suppression of truth has led to something completely different. And let me just ask you, with all of those who have prided themselves in all of their discovery, have they given you, has the world provided you with an answer to the dilemma of human existence? Has it given you an answer to the challenges that we face? Why is it that we live longer than we've ever lived before? We have more than we've ever had before. We're, 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 we're blessed beyond measure. We live in a country that's, that's never had an invasion upon its, on its, on its soil, in the, at least in the four, Pearl Harbor is like the one example. I mean, we're, we are blessed as, as a people, as a nation. But why do we believe somehow, A, we're responsible for that? We didn't get to choose where we were born. We didn't get to, we didn't get to pick who our parents were, how we were educated, or what we, everything we have, uh, is, it, is it all chance? And I look at these things and I'm, and I'm, I'm shocked at, at the, the willingness to believe anything but in the most obvious thing. Have you guys seen that new movie, Ad Astra? 
You know what I liked about that film, actually? Brad Pitt's sent on a mission to uh, retrieve his father, who is this astronaut. He has to go clear out. I think it's like to Neptune. And there his father is still alive. He thought he was dead. And his father has gone on this mission to discover life in another part of the universe. And what I thought was pretty profound about the film was that he gets to his father and his father is unhinged by the fact that there is zero evidence that there is any other life anywhere in the universe. It doesn't deny the possibility of God. It denies the possibility of other life, other places. But people are more willing to hold on to that hope for some reason than they are which is even, even holds less plausibility than the idea that we are people made in the image of God. We go out, I, how many Christians do I meet or even, even people that are pseudo-religious say, I, I like to go out into the, out, into the outdoors to, to experience God. And I'm like, I actually believe that that is true, that there is a beauty that reveals, but I'm starting to wonder is, is that I think we get in, out into the outdoors to experience God and to escape sinful people. So the evidence that God is real is found actually in our own sinfulness and our brokenness and even our desire to get away from that brokenness out into what we consider to be pure and beautiful. But what, what goes on? So that's just one piece of it. Does the world itself speak to the power of a God who has spoken into existence creation? Psalm 19, one through four, I mean, this is exactly what Todd spoke on last week. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiworks. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's what Chesterton said, the world is full of magic and if it's full of magic, there must be a magician. We see design, we see purpose and we have a revelation of God. But there is also an internal barometer that, that Paul speaks of too. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen and understood. And that speaks to something that is going on within us, a, a, a seeming knowledge that there is something that we're made for something more, that something is missing. There's a longing in the human heart and, and we can't seem to figure out how to get there. Romans chapter two, verse 15, it says, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. That is Paul speaking about those who actually have never heard the law, have never been exposed to, to Judaism or Christianity, but he's saying there's something written in the human hearts. This is one of the great questions and hangups for people that have a hard time with Christianity. What about all of those people that have never heard the gospel? And I would just simply say this, Jesus is the light of the world. And what Paul is saying here is he's not saying there's full revelation of God. He is saying that there is enough revelation of God that, they should, that it should be recognized by what is revealed that there is a God and that there's enough written upon the human heart that you should have a basic sense of what is right and what is wrong. And because of those things, people stand accused. They are without excuse. Now here's the question. Does God then damn those who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus? I would just simply say this. If Jesus is the light of the world and God tips the scales toward mercy and we can trust his character that he will judge in accordance 
to his character and that people will be judged based upon the light that was available to them. I think that that is the most reasonable explanation. But I would say even more importantly, it's less important about what about those who haven't heard. The question is, what have you done with the gospel that you have heard? And how have you responded to it? This internal barometer speaks to this, this reality of the kingdom of God already here and not yet, that, that there is written into our very being the fingerprint of what it means to be image bearers and what it means to be bearers of even that law of God. And how is it that people understand on a basic level that they are lost? What is the point of reference? They must have some vague concept of what it means to be found. Luke 17, Jesus, in being confronted by the Pharisees, they said, they said you know, the coming of the king, he said, is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of God is already here. It is within you. It's in your midst. And I think that this is, this is something that's important is that everybody has written upon them aspects of the king. We are made in the image of God. We have the kingdom within us, but if we are lost, then we are at cross purposes with it. That's why I always say you can do nothing you can do nothing to change the truth of who Jesus is. You can either submit to him as king of kings or be crushed by him. Be broken upon the truth of who he is. It's like running up against a wall and trying to say it's not there. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And this is the thing, what caused any of us, all of you here who have put your trust in Jesus, what caused any of you to believe it? What caused you to come to it? What was it in your life that made you, maybe you've been a believer your whole life and you, you can't answer that question. And you may be questioning, well, is it really mine? Have I truly owned it for myself? But I know for me, what drew me to Jesus at 27 years old is that I felt lost, I felt condemned, and this isn't with anyone preaching a gospel of wrath. I didn't even come to faith at a church. I came to faith reading a Bible. And, I, and it was the kindness of God, a Jesus that loves me in spite of my sin, that caused me to say, I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to understand this Jesus. And I just kept reading and reading, and then I just remember praying that one day, Jesus saved me. Because I didn't need someone to be cool. I didn't need someone to show me you know, how to balance my checkbook. I needed someone to save me. I needed someone to actually infiltrate my impotence and give me a way out of the mess that I had made. When people say Christianity is a religion for the weak, I would say yes and amen. If only you knew the truth of that statement for yourself as well. We know we're lost because we bear the image of God within ourselves, which leads us to that place that Paul states with such intensity which means that people are without excuse. And it leads, this suppression of the truth leads to a darkening of the heart. And this is why he goes on to say, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Jeremiah 17, 
9 declares that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's the seat of, our, of just our, our being, our personality. It's the, the heart represents the very center of ourselves. And it says that, listen, the heart, this is why when you hear those phrases, follow your heart. Let me just ask you, am I the only one who recognizes that that was probably the worst advice anyone could have ever given me as a young man? Because follow my heart when I was young is that my heart was like a stinking Pandora's box that had been unlocked. And for me, following my heart was following my, my path into as many intimate situations as I could get into with as many random women as possible. Following my heart was doing as many drugs as I could get my hands on because that was actually fun and more of a religious experience than I ever experienced in a church that didn't preach grace. Following my heart meant making sure that my goals were number one and that everybody else was secondary. No, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And when we suppress the truth of who God is and we elevate ourselves to the place of God, what we do is we become darkened in our thoughts. We become foolish. It says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. When humanity exalts itself, the distance between God and humanity becomes obscured. In other words, we lose sight of the God who, the humble king, because we have placed ourselves in the place of king, and this is where we become darkened. And this is what it means by the exceeding sinfulness of sin, is that this is even what it means by the hardening of the heart. God giving us over to what we want, the releasing of God saying, fine, you wanna go that way. And the more we give ourselves to a thing, the more darkened we become to it. Have you ever been around a heroin addict? Heroin's really fascinating. If you see someone give themselves to it, it doesn't take long before it creates very specifically a deadness in the eye uh, where there is, a, there is a darkness. And I had a friend who became a, a very significant heroin addict and it wasn't long before he was stealing from us and, and, and it wasn't long before he would rationalize his willingness to do anything to get his next fix, thinking that that was his freedom when in actuality he was owned, as William S. Burroughs so brilliantly puts in his introduction to his book, Junkie. He goes, I didn't own heroin, heroin owned me. And I think that this is the reality of the dark. And that's an extreme example, but I promise you, there's a million examples. It's like that movie, Shaun of the Dead, where he gets on the, on the bus and the opening scene is, is everyone on the bus looks like zombies when they're actually just listening to their, they're looking at their devices and listening to music and there's a, there's a deadness that comes over and you're like, oh, this is gonna be a spoof on just human existence as a whole. There is a darkening that, that, that comes when we exalt ourselves. We take what God has made, we pass it off as our own, we don't acknowledge our dependence on the creator, but claim to be independent. We prefer illusions, and we call the shots, and we decide what is wrong, and we think that we are the maker of our own reality. And this falsehood is what leads to the despair that we see, because the gods that we worship will define the experience of that worship. First Corinthians 1, 21, it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And this is why the message is foolishness to those who are perishing, because they have darkened in their thoughts to the place where they do not see the need 
for a God because they are in denial about the truth of where they're actually at. And I think that this is one of the great classic examples of why uh, AA is only effective if you begin at the first step, which is you can't get help for alcoholism if you can't admit that you're an alcoholic. This is something that I battled with my dad for years. My dad would always say to me, I can give up alcohol whenever I want. And I'm like, and that's why at 67, you still drink a fifth and a half of vodka a day because you don't have power like you think you do. But we're so afraid of losing our autonomy, we can't bear to admit that we're actually enslaved to our patterns. And so you have this, this suppression of truth that leads to the darkening of the heart. Are you guys feeling super encouraged yet? Um, and it comes down to the exchange of God. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And here we have the exchange of the true God for the gods of our own making. G.K. Chesterton famously said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in everything. And the question for us is, what will we choose to make our gods? Because if Jesus is not the center of your worship, something is. Because all people worship all the time. So the question is, is what do you worship? Because the exchange of God is that we take the true God who actually can bring peace and joy and hope to our lives and we replace it with a God of our own making. I mean, this is not a hard thing to say. I mean, this is the, even the, the essence of what is being st stated here, images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. I mean, it almost speaks to the, the continual, what seems to be this great controversy, and I think it's a false controversy between science and faith and the, that we worship what, what are you supposed to worship? Well, the answer from, from the, the average hum, humanist is that you, a materialist, is that we worship our experience. We worship our own innate abilities. We worship, we worship our accomplishments. We worship progress. We worship the false idea that we can create our own utopia. But no matter how much we progress, no matter what we accomplish, we're not actually getting happier and we're not experiencing more peace. And so the question is, is, is what have you exchanged the glory of the immortal God for? My prayer is that, is that you've come here today to recognize this, that yes, humanity in its sinfulness has suppressed the truth of God, has been dark, has had its heart darkened and we have exchanged God for a lie. But the reason that you and I are here today, even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there's a reason why you're here today. It's because God exchanged his place of glory for our place of sin so that he could take that sin. And this is why the gospel is such good news and why it so shines so brightly against such a dark story is that we were told that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. There is an exchange that has taken place once and for all. And that Jesus on the cross dealt with this rebellion and this, this brokenness and this disease. He dealt with it once and for all. All sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And for us to say no to God's yes 
is to leave us with nowhere to go. It is to leave us in a place of lostness when Jesus has said, I have come so that you may be found. You're here because I have drawn you. I am here, I, you are here because you can't save yourself. I have made myself known to you. I alone save you. And the question is, is will you say yes to his yes? And it's not just a once and for all, we say yes once and then we just go back to our business. This is why so many Christians live miserable lives. But it's a daily repetition of a yes again and again to Jesus' yes. It's a daily death to the lie of who God never intended us to be. We don't want to exchange God for a lie. We want to exchange the lie for God. We die to the lie so that we can experience the power of the resurrection life of Christ. Because the cross of Calvary is a point where where God's wrath, his judgment, and his mercy come together. Where Jesus in our place is both the judge and the judged. Where hope is made possible through the atrocity of what humanity is capable of, which is putting to death the Son of God. And let me just tell you that the world continues to try to kill God, but it will not be effective because God loves you. And in spite of our hatred of him, in spite of our attempts to rid ourselves of him, he continues to pursue us. I've watched him do it with my dad and I believe he's doing it with each one of you. I believe he's doing it with me. He pushes into us and presses down upon us to say, I am not content to exist without you. Do not say no to my yes. Even your ability to say yes is because I created you. Because I gave you life. Why would you choose death? Don't exchange God for a lie that only brings misery. Put your trust in Jesus. For he's the king of kings. He's the author of truth because he is the truth. And there is nothing that can be added to him or taken away from him, nothing that can be added to what he has done for you, nor taken away from what he has done for you. Say yes to his yes. Confess, it's repent. I am a sinner. I am lost without Jesus. I put my faith in you, Jesus. You be king. You define for me what is right and wrong. You be Lord. This is the gospel. And this is why the bad news can so quickly become the best news you've ever heard in your life. We need help. We need a savior. Praise God, as Paul said, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God for his son, Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.